forever. Dog. Just between us. Hey. Just between us. Hey. Hello. I'm Alice Raskin. I'm a writer, mental health advocate, and I like winter clothes more than summer clothes. Hi, I'm Gabby Dunn. I'm a writer, bi-con, bisexual icon, wink, and I feel oppositely, I think. Really? Tell me more. I don't know. Well, I guess I like layering, but I do like a good tank top. And if you're listening to this, I have already gotten top surgery. So Mm. I plan to just wear the skimpiest little tank tops possible. Tiny little skimpy tank tops for summer. (laughs) Absolute nipple showing tanky toppies for summer. (laughs) See, I like more clothes. Like I love a sweater. I love a pant. And I find so many of the summer clothes that they sell now. It's just like crop tops and short skirts. Like I don't feel like there's like regular clothing for summer anymore. Uh, have you tried like a capri? No, I wear one pant and then I just buy that pant. <laughs> I don't tr- I don't have So this I guess like I, you already have clothing problems. Yeah, I have a ton of clothing problems. I got a lot of problems. I'm so curious what I would present like if I didn't have all my sensory issues. I think I would look really cool. Like what? Like I think I would just wear like um really like cool stuff. <laughs> like what? <laughs> Okay, so like I think I would wear I think I would wear leather pants. Ah. Not wow. not real leather, but I love like a tight leather pant look. I think I would wear like really cool boots, like, you yeah. know, like I'd wear heels. I would wear like a lot of like things that were more tight. I would wear bras. I would look amazing. Yeah. But all of that hurts you. Yeah. Instead, I just I could wear a burlap sack and be it looks the same as what I wear now. But that's not <laughs> true. That's not true. You dress very nicely, but you're just worried about comfort. Yeah. I have to pick comfort over style. You dress nicer than me. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah. I, I'm in a constant battle of how much I should care about what I wear. But I just went to <sighs> Old Navy and got so many amazing things. So I'm really into my winter wardrobe. Yeah, you know what? I was almost going to suggest Old Navy for summer clothes. <laughs> we are not sponsored by Old Navy. <laughs> oh, my God. Gabby, almost, I almost opened this whole segment with, and I love Old Navy. But I thought that you would get mad at me for promoting a brand that wasn't paying us. No, Old Navy is not paying us in any way, but... They have not let me down in like 20 years. So I haven't been in forever. And I went this winter and I was like, oh, my God, these are regular clothes. Like it wasn't like super like of the moment shit. It was just like nice classic stuff. And I I thought to myself, I should come back here for summer, too, because I bet they'll have like full size shirts, which will be thrilling. Listen, they have those commercials with Jennifer Coolidge now. So, you know, they're good. (laughs) We are not sponsored by Old Navy. Not yet. This is just between us and variety show filled with heartfelt advice, ridiculous games, and brutal honesty. Also, have have you guessed that we're in our thirties? That we're like, you know, what is good stuff. <laughs> Old Navy approaching my mid thirties, just being like, you can get some great stuff at Old Navy. This is like that. This is like the commercial where it's like, don't become your dad. What's happening? <laughs> you are in your mid thirties. 
That's what I'm saying. As I am in you my mid thirties. You said approach your mid thirties. You're in it, baby. Thirty five to thirty six. No, thirty four is mid thirties. I'm in my early thirties. <laughs> I thought thirty three was mid thirties. And then my mom said, I'm not there yet. I have another year. Oh, wow. Okay, so you're in your early 30s. I'm in my mid-30s? Yeah, sorry. Wow, that's fine. I look forward to aging. I'm going to have a great 40th birthday party. Ooh, mm-hmm. yeah. But that's in six years, so I do have to wait. Um, Melissa has a quick question. Seconds before I hit record, you said you were ready for this to be over. <laughs> oh, I am. Yeah, that's true. You know, you're ready to go is what I'm, you said. I'm mercurial. Oh, yeah. So right before Melissa hit record, I said, I'm ready to go. And then they said, OK, we'll get started. And I said, no, I mean, I'm ready to die. <laughs> and, then, and then they were like, you just announced that. Like, were you kidding? And I was like, I'm not kidding. I just, I got a text message about someone I don't like succeeding at something. And I was like, I'm ready to exit life. Oh, that's the worst. Why would someone tell you about that? Because they were also jealous. So they were like, look at this bullshit. And then uh-huh. I was like, and then I was like, truthfully, I'm I'm ready to go. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Let's get on with the show because it actually is an amazing episode. Yeah. And it's really life affirming. It's a life affirming episode, actually. <laughs> <laughs> this week, we're asking Liam Colley some tough questions about midwifery and babies and birth and queer conception. And it's like a beautiful, again, life affirming in- <laughs> interview. Yeah, but you gave us five minutes between segments and we completely lose hope. (laughs) And hypotheticals is actually super fun, too. So stick around. But later, we're even going to be talking about compromise, which um, I find to be a confusing subject. I don't and I won't compromise. Exactly. Okay, but first we have got to answer a listener's question. And you know what that means? Hit it! International question, international question, international question. Anonymous, unknown. Wow, anonymous and unknown. Hi, Allison and Gabby. And Gabby was in parentheses, which I enjoyed. I'm a young adult female, and I've been working in a city near some of my extended family. My family has been pretty close. To set the stage, my parents have three siblings who all moved at various ages with their parents to America. The immigration trauma and my grandparents' parenting has led to a lot of rifts between my parent and her siblings, but they remain close. A few years ago, my parents' sibling, who had a very long and serious mental health history, passed away from cancer. It's also worth noting that my family has a lot of undiagnosed, yay, mental health stigma, ASD, and other mental illnesses like bipolar. Like my mom and her siblings exhibit symptoms and they each have at least one child who exhibits medium to serious symptoms. That's just the background. Here's the situation. One of my younger cousins, Jeremy, male, middle school, was recently institutionalized. He was severely underweight and was diagnosed with an eating disorder, ARFID, which is Avoidant Restrictive Food Intake Disorder. Mm. He's an only child and his parents are older and don't really keep up with the times. Like his mom scolds slash jokes about him having OCD and belittles his desires, even though he might actually have the disorder or be on the spectrum. I bought him a switch light, but he told me he can't really play it much because his parents don't like him playing video games. They're also always around and it doesn't seem like he is very much unstructured time. 
For his ED, they have to watch him eat, but I feel like he's old enough that he deserves more privacy than they give him. I want to be involved in Jeremy's life, but it's difficult because his parents are a little overprotective and sometimes he can be difficult to be around, though I am a lot more patient than when I was younger. I'm trying to be more involved in his life and communicate with him more directly. He has a phone but doesn't use it. I'm not sure he has friends at school. When it's just me and him, I feel like I can reach him and we have a good time. But he obviously tenses up and acts differently when his parents are in the room. It's also a little awkward slash difficult to make plans with just him through his parents. His parents are not physically abusive. Emotionally abuse is kind of a run-of-the-mill in my family's mix of immigrant and mental health issues. Don't really know the extent of that. My question, how do I be a supportive and present figure in Jeremy's life without stepping on existing family's toes? Or any other advice you have about supporting a young family member going through things? P.S. Really appreciate all you guys do. Been watching since the BF days. Thanks for helping me grow into a more empathetic person and ally. Wow. This is a really beautiful email. Yeah. Um, you see, It seems like you you really care. It's, it is very clear that this is plaguing you a bit, that it is something that you are like deeply concerned about in a way, in, in a way where maybe someone else would be like, well, it's not my problem. So I do feel that that there is like a great kindness in you. I don't think it's, it would be weird to ask to spend more time with him or to invite him to more things. Like, I think, I mean, if the, if the parents are very strict as a family member, like, would it be that weird to be like, I want to take him to the movies or I want to take him to ice cream, like, or I want to go to lunch or something like aren't parents like thrilled to have their kids taken off their hands? Like, I think like it's hard when you're the only family member who maybe you recognize something in a kid, whether you're queer and you recognize a kid is queer or you have mental illness, you recognize a kid might have mental illness and you feel like you're not, you you can't have the responsibility of a parent, but you're like, I can be a mentor. I can be someone who, at least shows them that there's hope, at least is someone they can bounce questions off of or ideas off of. But it requires like building trust. And I think you're working on doing that. But I don't I think it's I don't think it would be out of line to the parents to ask to hang out with him more. I don't think that would I don't I can't imagine that that would come across as as anything other than nice. Um, but it is delicate because depending on what you say to him and stuff, you want to make sure that he's not like reporting back to the parents. <laughs> I don't know. It's a tricky one. I think it's like Gabby said, so awesome that you even care to ask this question. Mm-hmm. And the thing that stuck out to me was sort of just the importance of consistency in a child's mm-hmm. life. So I don't necessarily think it's like, oh, you have to hit this many hangouts in this next six months. I think it's more like... Or download it with everything at once. Like get everything out at once. Totally. Like I think the thing that will matter the most is just that you are consistently there for him at whatever degree he wants you there. So it's like allowing him to know Mm -hmm. that like reminding him, if you ever need to talk about things, I'm here. Also, like with his cell phone usage, like maybe now he's not using it that much, but maybe as he gets older, he'll use it more. And so making it clear that he has your number, sending a few messages every now and then in case he does check it, Um, being aware of his cell phone usage changes. So you do end up talking to him more that way. I think just like really 
making it clear that you're not going anywhere, that you care about him, that you're a resource for him. And then, you know, not overly forcing that on him, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Like, like just like always showing that you care about him, always showing up for him in the way that you speak to him and the way that you ask him questions about his life and the way that you make it clear that you find him interesting and lovable and all of those things. But I think it's probably going to be more of a slow burn than anything else because of the dynamics of this family and because it doesn't seem like the type of thing where you couldn't step in and say like, hey, hey, you're not parenting your child right. Let me intervene in this dramatic way. I think Gabby's right that like you can't totally potentially like plan things to do with him, right? Like it may be the Mm. workaround is like, it's something quote unquote special. So it makes sense why you're asking him to see this movie premiere with you or go to this nearby haunted house on Halloween or like, you know, like almost seasonal activities where like it would make sense to the parents that that you're doing this instead of them being like, why Mm -hmm. do they keep keep hanging out with my middle schooler? (laughs) Yeah. Um, I also think it's important to remember to not create a problem where there isn't one. So like if the mom is making jokes about his OCD, don't go to him and be like, hey, it's fucked up that your mom is saying that. Like, you know, let him come to you. If he feels like, let him come to you. Like, don't sort of, I think sometimes people like force people to be like, you know, aren't you unhappy about this or whatever? But I think like if you can just be like there and be like, hey, like I, you know, I I have my own struggles with mental illness. And like I j- just like don't put, position yourself as against the parents because that's going to make seeing him harder. Like, I think you have to just let him come to you and and like see see like say the things that bother him. And then but you can only say for yourself like. Yeah, I have that. And like, I take it seriously, you know, like, but not in a way of like conspiratorially sort of being like, your dad's not a good dad. You know what I mean? Yeah, but I also think you can provide maybe some resources that he wouldn't have on his own. Right. So maybe like there's something about OCD that like a piece of content that you want to share or a podcast episode or, you know, like being almost like a library of information for him yeah, in a way that his parents probably aren't, um, that you're kind of mm-hmm. a safe space to go to, to ask questions, to get information, to like express himself. But yeah, I mean, I really think it's, uh, it, it's going to be a process. And I think that the older he gets, the probably more and more he'll appreciate you being there. But Definitely. like the first step is just continuing to be there. <laughs> yeah. Just showing up and and letting him know that you're not abandoning, you're not going anywhere, you're not, you're still there for him. Um, I agree about like, even if he doesn't respond, sending texts. It's funny because you can't always tell, like you can't always tell if someone's getting, if a kid is getting something out of it. Like uh, near the cabin, one of our neighbors has a, a trans uh, grandkid and was like, can you guys hang out with, with her? And we were like, okay. And so we were hanging out with her and we thought she was going to ask us a million questions. She's like uh, in high school. She's going to ask a million questions. She's going to like want to whatever, like all this stuff. But she just like came to the porch and just like wanted to just hang out and like barely spoke. And we were like, okay, I think we did a bad job. And then later the neighbor was like, oh, she loved it. She was so happy. She like felt so like happy to be with other trans people. But like in the moment it was like, we were like, we have failed because she had barely talked. And yeah. like we we would try to be like, how's school? Fine. What do you do at school? Learn. Like, you know what I mean? So we were like, okay. And then 
privately to the to, so you never know like with kids like that sometimes you never know like the effect you're having and you might think it's like nothing but it re- but it really is <laughs> and I think there's also like a good tactic is to make it clear that like you like them for them I yes. think can be really powerful where you're not just sending like oh you are my cousin and therefore we should spend time together but it's like I like this specific thing about you that makes you you I think is a way to sort of like form a bond and to have people feel more more comfortable around you. Yeah. So like, wow, that's so cool. You're so smart. Yeah. Or like, tell me more about this hobby or this thing that you like or like really getting into his interests and the things that make him unique to him might speed up the process of of you guys forming a stronger relationship. Definitely. Well, hopefully that helps. If you want to submit your question, you can send an email to justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. That's just between us, P-O-D, at gmail.com. Up next, we have an exciting interview with our highly esteemed guest, Liam Colley. So stay tuned. Just Between Us. Welcome back to Just Between Us. It's time for the juiciest, most scandalous, most controversial segment known to all of podcasting. Tough questions. This week on the show, we have Liam Colley, licensed midwife and has dedicated their career to improving the lives of LGBTQ plus families having babies. Obviously, their work is extensive. Liam's unparalleled expertise is encompassed in their first book, Queer Conception, the complete fertility guide for queer and trans parents to be. But we got to get into it in IRL with them. So hello. Hi there. (laughs) Oh, my God. I have a thousand things to say. But first is how delighted were you when you came up with the title for your book? Oh, my God. That was a whole process. (laughs) Queer conception is so I love it so much. Good. I'm glad because it took a while to to land on it. Oh, my God. Okay, we're both so excited. Allison, you go first. Yeah, I wanted a midwife on the show for a while, actually, because I think it is such a fascinating profession and something that's like misunderstood, but is like becoming more mainstream. And so what is the difference between, you know, an OBGYN and a midwife and and all the misinformation out there about the two? I love that you asked that question. And I also love that you asked the question in terms of what's the difference between a midwife and an OBGYN, because some people get confused about the difference between a midwife and a doula. Mm. So I'm going to answer both. Amazing. You know, viewers. So a midwife is more similar to an OBGYN because you would either have a midwife or an OBGYN to be your clinical care provider throughout pregnancy and birth, where a doula is a non-clinical care provider. All important members of the team, but very different roles. The difference between a midwife and an OBGYN, there are many. But categorically, midwives care for uncomplicated pregnancies. So pregnancies where like this is a physiological thing that bodies do and there's no problem here. So, you know, if there's no increased risk, those pregnancies are just fine with a base level of care. And in fact, really awesome with a base level of care. The care, the paradigm of care is really different where In obstetric care, it's really an authoritative model where Mm -hmm. your job as the patient is to show up for appointments and do what they tell you to do and limit your questions to like five minutes or less, if you're lucky. (laughs) In the midwifery model, it's a model of shared responsibility. 
in midwifery care, we take the time to give people information about their pregnancies, about the tests that are being offered, what's involved in the test, what you might do with the information. And the entire paradigm of care is one where there's not a hierarchy. It's I have information that comes from my education and training. You have information about what it is to live your life and live in your body mm-hmm. and to make your own informed decisions throughout your pregnancy. And so those two things go hand in hand. And the other thing that I will say is that midwives, part of the midwifery model of care is we have, number one, we do all the same prenatal care that any other provider would do for a normal pregnancy. So you're not like, it's not like you can't get ultrasounds or blood work. We order all of those things. And the basics of a prenatal assessment, taking your vital signs, you know, your blood pressure, listening to the baby, measuring the, the growth of the abdomen, Those things are going to be the same whether you're with a midwife, family practice doc, OB, naturopath, whoever is caring for you. We all do that same basic assessment. So that's why visits with midwives are usually half an hour to an hour, depending on whether they're in a hospital-based practice or an out-of-hospital-based practice and just how they've set it up, where an OBGYN, you're lucky to see them for five or 10 minutes and fewer visits, et cetera, because really like if all you're supposed to do is show up and do what they tell you, then there's not a lot of time needed for that. But if you're developing a relationship and keeping people involved in their care and facilitating informed decision-making, that takes time. So we have time for that. What is the difference with a doula? A doula provides physical and emotional support through labor, sometimes can be available for questions in pregnancy and may also provide some childbirth education. Postpartum doulas may come into the home to help you after the baby arrives, but doulas don't provide any clinical care. So like they don't do clinical prenatal visits. Like most doulas will meet with you a couple of times before the birth Mm. to get to know you, get to know your wishes for the birth. They're not going to be taking your blood pressure, testing you for gestational diabetes, administering Pitocin if there's too much bleeding after birth, delivering the baby. I mean, yeah, maybe you have a really rapid birth and the doula's there and catches it. Like that's an <laughs> extraneous circumstance. But yeah, doulas are, are just there in a crucial role of emotional and physical support and comfort measures, but they're not they're not the care provider right. for your pregnancy. And I know a lot of like midwives, like you mentioned, will also work with hospitals so that if something does go wrong during the labor, there are also doctors there as well. Like, do you feel like that that's important? What like what model do you do? I think it's important for people to understand that any midwife, part of the screening that we do, whether we're hospital based or out of hospital based, is to make sure that everything is still physiologically normal, that there's no increased risk. And if there is, we get you connected with a physician. So that could happen during prenatal care. It could happen during birth, in which case we, if we need to go to the hospital, we go to the hospital. So you're also not foregoing any kind of you know, additional care should there be um, a complication or even an emergency. We're gonna get you where you need to go. There are some midwives who practice in the hospital And for a lot of people, that's a good kind of in-between. Maybe they live far away from a hospital, so they don't want to do a home birth because they want to be closer to a medical facility. Or maybe the person wants some pharmacological pain relief during labor, like an epidural. 
that needs to be done in a hospital setting. But what people often don't realize is that midwives who practice in the hospital are also bound by hospital policies and sometimes by the policies of the obstetric group they work with. And Mm -hmm. so it's not as autonomous as those of us who practice outside the hospital. But I think that you've kind of named another common misunderstanding, which is that if you're if you're with a midwife, then that's it. And you don't get a doctor. (laughs) And that's not true at all. If some if a complication comes up, my job, my responsibility, the very first thing I want to do is get you connected with the appropriate care provider. And other than that, if if no complications arise, then I want to keep you in the safety of a paradigm of care where you can be seen and heard and have time for you where I know you, I know different aspects of your life, and I'm able to provide care in a way that honors who you are, how you live your life, what your family structure looks like, and just kind of how you tick. So that is the kind of midwifery that I used to do. I used to, I've attended over 600 births. I've gone to births for about 25 years, maybe a little bit more. But a few years ago, I decided I needed to sleep at night. I decided that (laughs) solo practice midwifery, any kind of birth practitioner deals with a lot of trauma just in the course of of their work. And being solo practice was really, really difficult. And I didn't want to be solo practice, but I couldn't find other midwives who wanted to specialize in serving queer and trans folks. Everybody, most midwives, they just love those juicy babies and juicy pregnant folks and want to go to births and that's their deal. Where for me and the population that I'm serving, when you need to create your baby with donor conception, your need for care starts preconception. And in fact, that preconception care is so little, it's not cared for in any kind of conventional settings in a way that actually is patient-centered in the way that we need. And so fertility care has always been a big part of my practice and supporting queer and trans folks throughout their pregnancies has been a big part of my practice. But at a certain point, I realized that it wasn't working for me mentally or physically to continue attending births and that I could actually serve more people if I shifted and focused on fertility and just provided adjunct care for people through pregnancy. So a lot of the care that I provide for people during pregnancy is in discussion groups centered around queer and trans experiences of pregnancy or solo parent to be like intentional solo parent stuff. I'll do childbirth classes for queer and trans folks and I do a new parents group. So I've kind of taken like the cream of all of my years of experience and skimmed that off and made it into this like nourishing, specific kind of course of offerings so that the queer and trans and solo parent families can get what they can't get in any other context. And it's really fun for me because I get to do it on Zoom now. It used to happen in the (laughs) office, but now it's on Zoom, so it's reaching even more people. And by the time we're doing those new parent baby groups, I mean, sometimes I've been with these families for a couple of years Mm -hmm. through the conception process, through the pregnancy. So not only getting to meet the babies, but we do it on Sunday morning. So it starts to feel like queer church, like queer family with baby church where people, but people are like in their home. So their hair is all messed up and they're still (laughs) in their PJs and they're eating some cereal and getting up to change diapers and feeding and like it's all just happening. But it's like, you know, 12 Brady Bunch style squares on the screen of everybody doing the same thing. So even though it means I have to work Sunday mornings, it's worth it. I just love it. 
what are the specific needs that you were seeing for the queer and trans community around pregnancy that you were like, okay, I have to pull this thread out specifically? Gosh, just being in a space that's gender inclusive and focused on our particular style Mm -hmm. of creating family is revolutionary for most people who have never walked into a room centered around pregnancy and not been like the token queer or you know, childbirth classes that split up the moms and the dads. And so then like the non-gestational parent is sitting with a bunch of dads and like, if that person's not a dad, then their experience is really different. Mm -hmm. So, you know, getting people together in the same space, our conversations can range from talking about the role of the role and the experience of the non-gestational parent, talking about embodied experiences of pregnancy, And that conversation is going to be different based on if there are trans and non-binary people in the space, the sort of ways that body positivity is so easily expressed within our communities, um, positive and affirming perspectives on mental health. So some of the topics are things that you could talk to about anybody, Mm -hmm. but we just have our queer ways of being Mm -hmm. and knowing and holding holding space for one another that may not even just be directly related to queerness, but that come that function differently in in our communities. Yeah, we'll always have one about gender identity and expression in pregnancy, which is relevant for people of all genders, whether they realize it or not, just in general, moving through a cis heteronormative world, you Mm -hmm. know, is something that we can talk about at various and often do at various stages of the process. Right. So, you know, I could go on and on, but I think you get the gist. Yeah, I mean, I think like someone coming into a hospital where they're like, "Okay, mama bear, like get rid," you know what I mean? Versus like, yes, or even the ways in which they talk to, you know, the husbands as if they're useless or something. Like, yes, I think like that's having someone to talk to around birth who isn't going to do that is probably yep. relieving a lot of stress. Yeah, it just it ends up normalizing. Yeah. Something that otherwise you would feel like a total outsider. And there's plenty of ways that we question ourselves and plenty of ways that, you know, rampant anti-queer bias comes out in politics and healthcare contexts and within families of origin. It's like if you don't if you don't have a time and a place to come together with other people who just get it Mm -hmm. because they have a similar life experience and other people who have who are experiencing some Mm -hmm. of the same things then I think it's it's human nature to turn it against ourselves. It's almost like we need the antidote to cis heteronormativity, especially during pregnancy. And all the ways that like talk around reproduction and donor conception can even be so bio-essentialist. You know, if you're not genetically related to your child, the world is going to tell you that you're not a real parent. Yeah. And I'm just here to tell you, you are really a parent. Yes. And I can tell you from all possible angles how you're a parent. But it has to be something where still, I think that there's great power in seeing other people and hearing other people's experiences that might be similar. There's a way that like being held by community Mm -hmm. is instrumental in and of itself beyond the your own internal self-talk, beyond how your partner supports you, beyond how even a care provider such as myself might support you. When you're seeing other people in the community and getting support that way, I think that's really what hits the deepest for a whole lot of us. 
so curious about the process of like before people are even pregnant and they're coming to you and figuring out that journey. And, you know, do you have cases where people, a couple would come in and they're not even sure which partner wants to carry the baby oh, yeah. or which, and like, Ooh. how do you kind of navigate that? Oh gosh, that's a great question. Wow. I mean, I start by listening. I start by listening to, you know, what each person's kind of, what their desires are, what barriers they perceive. I just want to hear all about it. Sometimes it just falls along the lines of age. If one, if they both want to be mm. pregnant, they want to have more than one child. It's more about who's going first. Mm. But if there's not an age difference, sometimes people are like, well, everything looks the same. So you make the call. And I'm not going to make the, you know, that's oh, really no. <laughs> very personal. So oh it's God. more, I do a lot of facilitating, facilitating communication between partners, eliciting thoughts about, you know, what does your life look like now? And how might that change if you were the one carrying the pregnancy? What might parental leave look like for you? Sometimes we even talk about caretaking styles in the relationship, which you may not you know, just to like connect that dot for you. In a lot of relationships, there's one person who feels more at ease being taken care of and one person who feels more at ease being the caretaker. And it's not that like there's no judgment around it. It just is. Some of us are wired that way. And in fact, for caretakers, they often feel deeply uncomfortable with being incapacitated in any way or needing to be taken care of. Mm -hmm. And so if there's going to have to be a reversal in that role, if the caretaker is the one carrying the pregnancy, I mean, you can absolutely do it. And people do. And it's part of how I talk to people about maintaining their relationship and planning for life with a new baby. But at the outset, if you already know that there's a difference in, you know, real difference in how each person might experience going through that very like physically limited, limiting process, then maybe that informs the conversation a little bit, especially if they're going to be limited to one pregnancy. Mm -hmm. You know, if they just want, yeah, we're one and done. So which one of us? And I, I would say that, you know, that doesn't happen so often. Like, usually if both people want to carry, they're going to be planning to have two babies and it's more about who's going to go first. Yeah. Mm. But all kinds of things happen. All, all kinds of things show up. I have a hot take question. Okay. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> so I see that your pronouns are they, them, uh -huh. as are mine. How do you feel about the word midwife? Oh, yeah. How I feel about the word midwife. Midwife means with woman. Mm -hmm. So obviously, I care for more than just people who identify as women. Midwifery is a marginalized profession in and of itself. It is a community-based model of care where people in communities throughout time, there's needed to be somebody to care for people who are having babies. Mm -hmm. And that person got called midwife in English. You know, the Spanish word partera is maybe a little bit more appropriate, like someone who cares for for birth. Mm. But I feel like it is, even though the, the technical meaning of the word does not apply to the work that I do, there is a lineage and a history of this profession that I espouse. And that is already has a precarious position within our healthcare system. And even within our society, a lot of people don't even know midwives exist. And 
frankly, it's a pretty fantastic patient-centered model of care and community-based model of care, right? So I've continued to use it. And I think that there's something there also about ways that care for people during childbirth has been co-opted by the medical establishment and that midwives have continued practicing either in their own communities because they didn't have access to obstetric care, such as the the Black granny midwives, as they're known in the South, in, in the South of the U.S., Native midwives, you know, different communities that didn't, that either weren't allowed access to that type of care or or just couldn't reach it geographically. So I feel like it's also in honor of those care provide caregivers and healers and communities that I'm aligning myself with that idea that there are many ways that the mainstream models of healthcare don't serve us. And this is an age-old practice of really holding people in their fullness in their homes, in the ways that they live their lives, um, from a, a level of shared understanding that can only be, that can only happen when you do kind of level the playing field and you're not, you know, being prescriptive and instructive and authoritative and telling people what to do. How do you become a midwife? Like, what's the, this is a two-parter. First part, how okay. do you, how do you become a midwife? What's the, what's the level of like, graduating from something or like what how do you get to become uh -huh. a midwife there are a few different ways there are two main well three main types of midwives nurse midwives mm -hmm. um, are nurses who complete all their generalized nursing training and then take additional midwifery training nurse midwives primarily deliver in the hospital but some have established out-of-hospital practices there are direct entry midwives who are midwives who received training directly in midwifery. So without a nursing degree, the didactic education and the practical experience is all in out-of-hospital births. And we tend to attend a large number of births during our training. And the education portion can either happen at a school or sometimes there are distance learning programs. Then the third category are traditional midwives, sometimes known as lay midwives, who are people who work in their home communities and aren't part of any system at all. Maybe were primarily apprentice trained or maybe did have some midwifery education, but they're not either they are spiritual midwives where they're not charging money for services mm. and therefore that allows them to practice legally. But it's uh, like totally outside the system way of practicing. So I myself am a licensed midwife. I went to midwifery school. There's a license available in my state and I'm not a nurse. So I'm a direct entry midwife. And you're able to send out for ultrasounds and x-rays and stuff? Yeah. And that also depends on the community. Midwifery is very well integrated into our healthcare in Washington state. For instance, when I lived in Hawaii, I couldn't get a lab account because midwives weren't regulated in that state. So I had to partner with a physician to order labs for me. Mm. And really, it's just, it, it creates barriers to care mm -hmm. for, for people who are receiving that care. But in communities where things aren't integrated, midwives find workarounds and find ways to get people the care that they need. What about the health insurance of it all? Like, is it often covered in people's plans to work with a midwife instead of an OBGYN? Or is that another battle sometimes? It is. It depends on the state. So here in Washington state, we are licensed, regulated by Department of Health. And because we have in, in Washington state, 
insurance companies are required to cover any every category of provider. Mm. So like, you know, whatever insurance company, you know, Aetna has to cover licensed midwives in addition to certified nurse midwives and physicians. There may be different stipulations. So for instance, Aetna does not cover, at least when I was practicing, didn't cover facility fees. So wouldn't cover a birth center, but Mm. would cover home birth. So and like a different company might not cover home birth, but only and only give contracts to midwives who practice in birth centers. So it's it's different based on the company. It's different based on the state. A lot of us use billers to help get people as much coverage as as we can. If a policy has a provision for an out-of-network provider, sometimes people get coverage that way. Mm. If licensed midwives can't be or direct entry midwives can't be um, covered in your particular state. I'm wondering if you ever have couples that are non-binary and they want to have a biological child, but neither feels totally comfortable being pregnant or perceived as pregnant. If that's something you've had to navigate. Well, yes. And I mean, that extends to single people, people in poly families, you know, different configurations where for whatever reason, the person who's going to be carrying the pregnancy is not super psyched about being pregnant. Sometimes it happens in couples where the other parent tried to conceive and wasn't able to. And now this person is it's their turn to try. Right. So, you know, obviously, if they are seeking pregnancy, then there is kind of a certain level of like, okay, I'm resigned to this. And so it's more about how are we going to be able to set things up well for you so that you can navigate this, you know, with the greatest level of, of well-being. So sometimes that has to do with, again, connecting people with good support, making sure that people have good mental health care, that they have ways to get the information they need about pregnancy that are not going to be misgendering, connecting them with care providers that are going to understand who they are, use the right pronouns, the right terminology, you know, asking what words they use for different parts of their body or specifically for their genitals or their chest, you know, that these sorts of things add up Mm -hmm. and make a big difference. So yeah, for somebody who's non-binary to go through just conventional obstetric care with none of those considerations, it's going to be traumatic. But the more sort of aspects of safety that you can build into the care or refer people to get, the better off they're going to be. And Often it just requires, you know, an opportunity to debrief, to talk through it or to get information about what to expect and how other people have managed, you know, different aspects of the process. Sometimes it's just like, what do I wear for pregnancy clothes? Mm -hmm. My pants don't fit and nothing at the store feels appropriate for Mm -hmm. me or my body. So talking to people about different tips and tricks around that. Mm I guess that's that's pretty much, you know, what it looks like from the outset, but it's not just a one and done. Like, we're going to talk about this before you get pregnant and that's it. Yeah, it's like there is care for you. And if I'm not the right person, there's other people doing this work as well. But you deserve you deserve care that pertains to you. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I talk to people and just in general acknowledge that, you know, there's a whole culture that we live in that's built around cisgender heterosexual couples having genetic offspring together Mm -hmm. and everything is built that way and those people also struggle during pregnancy in new parenthood etc so if you start you know laying on things that are different for us 
in our identities and our communities, you know, a white queer person is going to have more difficulty than a cisset, you know, white person. But then when you start putting overlays of gender differences and non-white racial identities and disabilities right. and different sized bodies, like it all ups the ante. Mm -hmm. So really getting being in paradigms of care that are going to take those aspects of, of self into consideration and help you feel, you know, a sense of belonging and validation in who you are. I mean, that's the launching pad we all need going into parenthood. And the straight folks just have it, you know, by default. So queer folks, we have to we have to create this for ourselves and access it. And there are lots of people who are providing doula care, midwifery care, childbirth classes, specifically in, in inclusive contexts. So sometimes it just takes a little bit of reaching out to figure out who's in your area or who you can access, on, access online to get what you need. Yeah, that was really beautiful. Oh, thanks. Hi, we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be right back with our guest. We're back. I was wondering, like, when you were talking about, oh, if something happens and then we go to the hospital, like, I feel like the the people, like, I feel like there's this idea of, like, midwives or doulas as being, like, woo-woo and, like, mm -hmm. dangerous or, like, or, like, oh, okay, you're going to do that. Like, I, not me. Like, I want to be right in the hospital where, like, anything, you know, could happen. Like, and I feel like that's such a misunderstanding. But like, what, how do you, what do you say to someone who's like, that's dumb. I'm going to go right to where the hospital is. Oh, it breaks <laughs> my heart when I hear people talk that way. I know. And I hear so many people talk that way and I hate it. Yeah. And like, okay, so with, if I was really having this conversation with a real person, it would take more time than we have available in this podcast. <laughs> sure. So I'm going to cut to the chase. Yeah which is that people get traumatized by their births in the hospital. And it's often unnecessary. There are so many interventions that are not necessarily that are designed to make it easier for the providers or let people go out of town on their vacation or whatever. When you think about it, you know, most people who are birthing in the hospital are getting an epidural where they can't get out of the bed, which means even the basic physiology of how a baby moves through the pelvis is not available if you can't move your body around. There are some workarounds, but hopefully your hospital and the nursing staff especially has some ideas about the workarounds. Even having a midwife for your care in the hospital is to your benefit. Mm -hmm. So going to the hospital doesn't mean that everything's, you know, hunky-dory. It means that your likelihood of a surgical delivery and your likelihood of experiencing trauma during the birth physically and psychologically is much higher. Mm them with a community-based care provider. And the flip side of that argument is that, yeah, if you want woo, you can definitely find some woo people to help you have your baby. And just because a person is a midwife does not mean they are woo. Exactly. In fact, you know, <laughs> nurse midwives, like you might have to work harder to find a, find some woo in your nurse midwifery <laughs> office. In your out, out of hospital office, there are plenty of us who are practicing in ways that are evidence-based, oftentimes more based on the evidence than your OBs are practicing, and who are not going to be woo. Or, you know, I can turn up the woo for my woo people. If yeah. that's the language they speak, I can speak it. 
but I'm going to do like 100% science for my folks that are like, if that's their comfort zone. (laughs) So I think that there's something to be said for the versatility of your provider and being able to, you know, find some similarities between you and and connect on your level and speak your language and give you information that's going to feel useful. I mean, I think that if somebody's like super woo, then they're probably not going to be satisfied with me because I'm going to say, you know, here's the research and here's here's where I'm coming from. And here's I don't know, I just provide care in -hmm. a way that like includes the science as as I think most midwives do. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on epidurals? I truly believe that wherever a person feels safest giving birth is where they should be. I think it's a big deal to open up your body and let a baby come out. So if you don't feel most comfortable in the hospital, then you shouldn't be in the hospital. If you don't feel most comfortable at home, then you shouldn't be at home. Your question was specifically about epidurals. And in order to get an epidural, you have to be in the hospital. So for somebody who doesn't feel safe in the hospital, yet they want an epidural, that's going to be a catch-22. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Another way that a similar catch-22 can happen is somebody who decidedly does not want to be in the hospital, but either the quality or the length of their labor is such that they're no longer able to cope with contractions and an epidural is going to be the way this baby is going to be able to come out physiologically, then that person will need to go to the hospital in order to access an epidural. So bottom line, you need to be with a care provider that you feel comfortable with that can help you navigate, you know, any eventuality And that care provider is going to be the consistent for you. You know, I've been thinking a lot about this because I'm preparing to write my next book and I I have not, um, the proposal isn't approved yet. It's still formulating. But a lot of what I want to, I want it to be about pregnancy. And a lot of what I want to speak to is the element of trauma. Because even just walking through the world as a queer trans person, for many of us, elicits trauma. You know, trauma of family rejection, trauma of you know, social and economic vulnerability, you know, direct experiences of violence or, you know, disparaging Mm. words. So many of us are already dealing with a, a trauma history. And then we enter these healthcare, this healthcare context where we're even more vulnerable because we're becoming parents. Um, because we need healthcare and it's not always designed for us. Mm-hmm. So the propensity for experiencing trauma is even higher for queer trans folks. But the concept of being able to get pain relief during labor is that if you already, if your trauma history makes it impossible for you to be able to accomplish the psychological letting go that's necessary for the body to let go and let a baby descend and come out, then an epidural is a really good thing for you. Mm. So I want you with a really affirming provider in the hospital where you can get an epidural. And if you plan an out-of-hospital birth, sometimes the conversation around needing to go in is because I can see that your labor itself is now traumatizing you. Mm -hmm. And you may be so committed to not being in the hospital that It's going to be a whole conversation just to get you to realize that actually this is going to be the way to go and a lot of reassurance and being able to negotiate the the hospital transfer in a way that's that's trauma informed, that's going to, you know, give people anticipatory information that's going to buffer with the hospital staff, that's going to support people to advocate for getting a nurse who's well matched them 
and, you know, intercepting any negative commentary. Usually when we go to the hospital, the first thing people hear is, I'm really sorry you had to come in. I know this wasn't your plan for this birth. Yeah. Doesn't happen everywhere, but it happens in a lot of places. And it's so reassuring when it does. So, you know, I think epidurals are really useful, sometimes necessary. And even if that's just what you want, the fact that you're getting what you want that's huge. Everybody should get what they want, whatever that is. And if you have to get something that you didn't necessarily want, but you need, I want that to be done really sensitively and holding your whole self as you go through that process. And that's something that, you know, to a certain extent, a doula can hold those like psychosocial elements. But having a midwife who's actually doing the transfer of care, you know, giving the, the report to the receiving physician, knowing what hospital to go to, you know, that kind of positing that we do as members of the healthcare community can be really protective and something that a doula isn't able to do in the same way. And would you still be there for the rest of the labor if a, if a patient has to go to the hospital or are you like not allowed in the room anymore? It's not that we're not allowed. I don't know. Well, maybe other people would take issue with that because I can't speak to every, all providers in all, all areas and all scenarios. But for the most part, when midwives take a, take someone into the hospital, they end up staying, but they no longer have a clinical role because they don't have privileges in that hospital. Mm. So it becomes the role of sort of similar to a doula where you're providing emotional support, physical comfort measures, the ability to translate medical information might be different for a midwife than it is for a doula, although more experienced doulas end up learning it on the job. And, you know, if a person has been care in care with me throughout their whole pregnancy, and then we find ourselves in a hospital situation for the birth, they may still value my clinical opinion. And maybe I have, you know, suggestions or ways of doing things that the hospital staff isn't aware of. Yeah. One way that I see this playing out a lot, and it surprises me every single time, is we get to pushing and, you know, everybody's kind of rallied around, the contractions are coming, the person's pushing and we push and push and push in a certain situation. And it's kind of like the nurses, sometimes even, even the doc, if they happen to be in the room at that point in time, are kind of like at a loss, like, oh, we're not having progress. And I'll be like, okay, how about we try this? And I'll give a suggestion of either a position change or if they have an epidural, there are ways that we can move the body around that help the baby kind of, you know, get underneath the pubic bone and be able to emerge. And I'll be like the only one in the room who's thought of these things. And everybody's like, how did you know that? How did you do that? And I'm like, well, that's is how we do. You know? It's my job. <laughs> exactly. So and like, why is it not yours? Right. <laughs> So it's really different. I mean, one of our hospitals here, all the nurses have taken this uh, training called Spinning Babies that's all about, you know, positioning for the baby to come out and the ones who haven't are learning from the others. And so like the nursing staff's great in that hospital, mm -hmm. which is a good reason to go there and have your baby just for the, the nurse, nursing staff that's really educated and probably would know more of those things. Wow. So it's really, really hospital dependent, you know, location dependent, how that all goes. And I just have one final question. I mean, I couldn't talk to you for 15,000 hours about this, but I'm not allowed to. So <laughs> my question is like, which we kind of touched on was how much are you also prepping people for the fact that their birth plan might not go as they want it to? I prep people for that quite a bit in my childbirth class. 
I talk about how, you know, you can make plans for your birth, which may or may not pan out the way that you planned, but you can always be prepared. Mm. So I do a lot of, I focus on internal preparation around, you know, coping methods for labor, just kind of like a mindset of surrender. Like you have to Mm. be able to surrender to let your body take over and helping birthing people and their partner or loved ones stay connected not only through the labor but even even while we're teaching the childbirth class there are partner exercises birth partner exercises so that you can make sure that by the time you get to the labor everybody's on the same page about what the person who's giving birth wants what they need what's going to work for them and the birth partner has a sense of what it takes to step into that role of birth birth partner, how to hold space for them, how to take care of yourself while caring for another person. And the other thing that I was going to say about that, I lost my train of thought, but it was very important. You asked about planning. Oh, yeah. So also in the childbirth class, we do an exercise where people write out the most important aspects of their birth birth experience. So like if you could, you know, draw a picture for me of what your ideal birth would look like, it would have these elements. And then we systematically go through and do, I lead people through an internal exploration of like, what happens if three of those things go away and the opposite happens? Okay, how do you feel now? Okay, what if three more of those things go away and the opposite happens? How do you feel now? So I've, create a way for people to work through some of their emotions of things not going how they're hoping they will so that if it does happen it's not the first time you've you know thought about that or felt into it and what most people tell me after the fact is that 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 one exercise was the most instrumental thing that helped them get through the labor psychologically intact like maybe mm-hmm. things didn't happen exactly how they did in the exercise But just the fact that they really um, internalized, like, you know what, things may or may not go as planned, but I'm clear that what I want to maintain is connection with my partner or loved one. And I want to maintain my ability to navigate everything as it unfolds without losing myself. And once people like have, uh, you know, it's not too hard, like usually what ends up coming out of that exercise is like, oh, I have my like, I can control my internal aspects of how Mm -hmm. I respond to the unexpected occurring, even if I can't control things on the outside. So just bringing that locus of control inside and and within relationships, you know, that's, it's much more reliable. And that's what's going to get you through. If you do end up with a difficult or, you know, complicated or even traumatic birth experience. Wow. I know. I love it. I'm blown away by you. Um, and now I'd like to ask you to play a very silly game show. <laughs> oh, let's do it. Let's lighten it up. I know. It's a different vibe, baby. <laughs> We're a roller coaster of a show. <laughs> it's like Jimmy Fallon. Yeah. It's, yeah. But better. Right. He he definitely would not have a midwife on. <laughs> Maybe if your book gets adapted into a Hulu series. Exactly. Right. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. This 
game is called Hypotheticals. You and Gabby are my contestants. I'm going to give you a series of hypothetical situations. You can ask any clarifying questions you might have, and then you tell me what you would do in that situation. I sometimes pick a winner and sometimes I don't. Okay. <laughs> Sounds great. You just have to make the uh, locus of control your own self. Okay. That's the key to winning. That's the trick. <laughs> All <Yeah>. right. <laughs> so our first game is America's favorite game show. Would you stay with this cheater? Your partner of seven years has always thought your best friend was hitting on them, but you never believed it because they are just super friendly in general. One night, your partner goes out to dinner with your best friend because you were out of town and they let your best friend kiss them and invite them back to their place to prove they were right. Would you forgive this cheater who made out with tongue and even went back to your friend's place to take a photo as proof? <laughs> so they they were doing like an undercover honeypot? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. And you wouldn't have believed it any other way. Exactly. Like for years, they've been like, your best friend hits on me all the time. I'm getting a really weird vibe. And you kept being like, no, they're not. They're just friendly. That's so rude of me. I hate that. So I've just been like telling this person their reality isn't real and that I don't believe them, that I don't trust their experiences for seven years. That's on me. At that point, <laughs> that person should actually leave me. <laughs> <laughs> Liam, thoughts? Excellent point. <laughs> I mean, I would ask them a long time ago if they if they wanted to, you know, get together with my best friend, like, and we would talk about how I would feel about that. And what would there be any limits? And, um, you know, probably talk to my best friend about it, too. But I probably would talk to my partner about it first. Similar to Gabby's point, I wouldn't have not believed them. Obviously, there's something there if they can, if That's they can it. feel it. Yeah. Okay. Now, the but there's someone who thinks everyone's always hitting on them. Oh, and maybe that's true. Oh, and maybe that's true. Absolutely. Tabby right. circa 2014 <laughs> to 2018. <laughs> I still kind of think most people are are hitting on me, but <laughs> and I'm not usually that wrong. But it's better than never knowing when people are hitting on you. Yeah, I like to. Because that's my problem. No, I like to assume mm. that they are until proven otherwise. Gabby didn't know okay. that what platonic friendship was until well uh, into their 20s. I'm queer. <laughs> I still don't know. But OK, so why didn't I just say to my best friend, are you into my partner? They lied. Oh, yeah. All of it. Well, oh, you would ask your best friend that? They'd be like, are you trying to fuck my partner? Wow. I can't imagine yeah. asking somebody that. Really? Yeah, but I'm also straight, so we have weird rules. <laughs> <laughs> if Allison's learned anything through the the doing this podcast with me, is that she's like, I feel like I'm a minority, and like actually, like my whole system is really weird, and like shouldn't be allowed. I think honestly, straight. straight I don't feel like a minority, but I'm like, we're doing this wrong. <laughs> Legalized straight marriage, to be honest. <laughs> no, it's so funny in this research uh, for my book. I, I like everyone being like, yeah, well, queer couples are just better at stuff. Oh, <laughs> 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 all right. So we're we're forgiving the partner. But they shouldn't but forgive are we me. Gonna for okay. And would you stay friends with the friend? No. 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 I I mean, 
Okay, so like forgetting that I don't think that I would have ended up in that situation in the first place because I'm polyamorous and I really value open communication in all matters. But if somehow, you know, it had been seven years and I didn't take them seriously and then they like lured them out to dinner and back to their place, I'd be like, what the fuck? Hands off. This is not something we negotiated about. And you did it behind my back and I can't trust you. And probably the same would go for said partner. Or tell me if the partner was like, while you're gone, I'm going to do a honeypot. (laughs) I'd be like, okay, because I'm so confident that they're not interested. I would be like, go for it, baby. Let me see. And then I would have been wrong. So, okay, I have to ask, what's a honeypot? Oh, (laughs) oh, it's so fun. It's like what? It's like what an FBI agent would do where they would like use a female FBI agent to like seduce a potential criminal to like get information out of them using their sexuality. A honeypot is like when the Whoa. yeah, when like James Bond hooks up with like a girl to like get information. OK, yeah. so that's yeah. that's the scenario you described, like the partner undercover, undercover, yeah. undercover to get just to prove it. Back using yeah. sex. Yeah, no, I'm right back to Gabby's answer. A lot of times a honeypot won't necessarily go all the won't follow through necessarily. Just yeah. hand stuff. But or- <laughs> <laughs> I love how your description also was kissing with tongue. <laughs> That's an important distinction on this it podcast. Is. Oh my god. <laughs> okay, our next game. Are you a terrible parent? Your child I think I know what you both will say to this, but let's do it anyway. Your child seven refuses to go to sleep. So you say that they can either go to bed right now or they have to stay up the entire night. (laughs) They choose the latter and you then keep them awake the whole night, even when they really don't want to be up anymore to prove to them the importance of sleep. You use an air horn at times. Are you a terrible (laughs) parent? No, I think you're a good parent. (laughs) Why? Why do they hate sleeping? Kids don't like to go to bed. They want to keep, they want to stay up and play. No. No, I'm a good parent. You have to learn your lesson. It's like when you catch your kid with a cigarette and then you make them smoke a hundred (laughs) cigarettes. till they hate it. Gabby is so progressive until it gets to parenting. Then there's like this deeply authoritarian style. (laughs) I'm like, my kid will be free range homeschooled. But if they smoke one cigarette, it's a hundred cigarettes for you. Like, I think that's fair. I think if they want to stay up, then they got to stay up. And then I think it would be effective. Liam? I'm going to say you're a bad parent because you just robbed yourself of a night of sleep. That's true. Mm. So like put on your own mask first, fill your own cup. Like, I mean, I literally have been like, okay, fine. I'm going to bed and leave them with a kid who didn't want to go to sleep because I knew I needed my sleep and they were going to be a mess the next day. I might say, fine, I'm going to bed. And tomorrow when you're a wreck, we're going to just like not go do X, Y, or Z or like, or guess what? You're still going to gymnastics and I hope you... You're going to be, be, be so tired. You're going to fall off the balance beam. Oh, my God. Harsh. <laughs> no, no naps. Get up. We're running. We're running laps, in fact. 
So oh, basically no. between you and me, Gabby. Yeah. I'm going to bed. Yeah. And you're keeping the kid up. I'm whist- doing whistles and jumping jacks. And then I can be the one the next day who's dealing with the fallout because I got the sleep and you're going to sleep during the day. Yeah. Okay. Co-parenting. That's what it looks like. <laughs> and that's and that's what it looks like. I'm glad Noah brought up that sleep deprivation is a form of torture. Um, yes. You know, it's funny because I've been watching. I watched all the Freddy Krueger movies last month. And if my kid was like, he kills you in your sleep, I would kind of, I feel like I would be like, let me at least hear him out. Like, if they were scared to <laughs> Wait, sleep. what? Like, you know, like in shows when like the little kid is like, no, the monster's coming and the parents are like, go to bed yeah. or whatever. Like, I feel like yeah. I've seen so many horror movies that I, or like supernatural things that I would be like, yeah, I'll hear you out. Like, who's killing you in your sleep? Like, of what's the situation? <laughs> Let's get you to some therapy. Yeah, like okay. I'm here, yeah. I'm here. If they were like, it's yeah. Freddy Krueger, I'd be like, yeah, that's really specific. Like, I feel like probably something is going on. You know what I mean? I'd help them. Yeah. Help them fight the dem- yeah. Demogorgon. Why are you telling your kids to go to school? There's a Demogorgon yeah. on the loose. Totally. I believe them. <laughs> Don't encourage them. <laughs> <laughs> the parents never believe the kids when, su- when supernatural craziness is happening. I, and I, I want to be the one parent who understands. I do. But, you know, they're also children with intense anxieties that have fears that need to be yes. that shouldn't be given more rope <laughs> no I'll, I'll hear him out <laughs> okay <laughs> our final game would you forgive this liar your partner of 10 years is constantly bragging about how much water they drink and claim that drinking so much water is how they look so young and have great skin oh no they even carry around one of those huge water jugs every day one day though you catch them pouring some of the water in the jug down the sink to make it seem like they drank more than they did. When you confront them about this, they confess sometimes they do this so they don't have to pee all day long. Would you forgive this liar? How do they really look young? They're just genetics. Wow, it's fucked up. Do they shame me for not drinking enough water? Yeah. Wow. Like Melissa. Melissa is so concerned with my water consumption, even though I have a water bottle that I carry around. I'm just one of those. I've never seen it. I've never seen it. (laughs) I'm just one of those people that has like multiple drinks. You've never brought it to my house. Multiple drinks. So many drinks next to me for no reason. And I heard recently that that's a bisexual stereotype, having a ton of drinks and just drinking from each of them. Really? That's what someone on TikTok was like, oh, are you bisexual? How many drinks are on your desk? And then a bunch of people were like, uh, but, Uh you know, that could be anything. And the point is, I think that's mean. They're shaming me for not drinking enough water. And they don't even drink. You know what? That's true. Melissa, I've never even checked how much water you drink. And you're on my ass all the time. <laughs> well, how do I know that's water, Melissa? How do I know? My dad was an alcoholic growing up. That could be anything. Because you see, when you come to my house, you literally see me fill it up and drink it. But I've never seen you with a water bottle ever in real life. Melissa, do I drink enough water? You drink things that have like... You drink more tea, but it's more water-based than what Gabby's drinking. Ooh. Liam, your thoughts? You know what? Your your producer needs to talk that ish with you, but your friend just needs to get off and go think about their own water and leave me it's alone. It's your partner. So honestly, your partner. I would be like, I would be like, 
I want a divorce. Yeah, leave me alone. I know that like it seems like not that big of a deal, but I actually think that if I found out that my partner was doing this, like my entire image of them or like conception of them would be shattered Agreed. and it would be like a really difficult thing to come back. Agree. Agree. <laughs> Don't shame me and don't go around bragging about you. Like bodies are bodies. We all live in one and not your business. And you might think that that's not a type of person, but I'm in a Reddit called Hydro Homies. Uh, And that's people uh who are obsessed with water. And all they do is brag about how much water they drink. So that's why are you in that Reddit to remind me to drink water? (laughs) (laughs) When it pops up, I go, I should have some water. I'm an enigma. You'll never pin me down. Whatever it takes. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, thank you so much for joining us. This was so wonderful. And where can people find your book and find out more about everything that you're doing? Well, a really great place to go is my website, www.mayamidwifery.com. You can find my book. You can find my classes. You can access preconception care, home IUI services in Seattle. My book is available at all major bookstores and many indie stores and public libraries. So if if your local bookstore isn't carrying it, you can bring that to their attention so that they do, you know, the online sellers as well. We all say with such disdain. I know. Um, (laughs) Totally. (laughs) Thank you so much. much. Thanks so much for having me. Stick around after the break. We'll be talking all about compromise. Boo. Just between us, it's time for topics. X X X X X X X baby, baby, baby. Wow, that was beautiful. Ooh, I love it. It's almost like is it? Well, no, because you were just in liturgical dance, but you were not in liturgical singing. I mean, I did sing in church, but it wasn't called liturgical. It's just called choir, but. <laughs> Yeah. We had Wait, what's choir. liturgical dance? That's it's Christian dance. You don't remember this whole conversation we had with Melissa about liturgical dance? Well, I didn't right. know what it meant. I didn't know what liturgical meant. It's kind of like interpretive dancing, but to the Bible, gospel music. Oh, imagine if it was just dancing to somebody reading the Bible out loud. That's what I thought as well. Spoken word. <laughs> <laughs> so, what made you choose compromise, Allison? Yeah, it seems like it was inspired by something. Oh, I, I'm i not allowed to say. Figure. <laughs> <laughs> I was baiting to see if you were going to uh, say anything. This is a podcast about honesty. Well, Gabby, am I allowed to blow up your spot? I don't want to blow up your spot. Oh, oh, it's about me? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was about you. <laughs> no. Oh, well, listen, well, I guess it was it was it was kind of a conversation we had where I was saying in my last relationship, ah, I felt like I compromised too much. But at the time, I thought I was just being flexible and that that was a strength. And so I've had to now 
grapple with what is the right amount of compromising? When are you giving up too much of yourself? What should you fight for versus be more flexible Mm. about? And how are we supposed to know the right ratio and how to navigate it all? I have no idea. (laughs) I have no idea. Everyone in my life is so goddamn rigid. I'll tell you this. My dad has been really great about trans stuff. Really great. Like very helpful, very good, like A plus mark done. He had a boy's name that he always really liked. He never got to use it. I was like, hey, I'm thinking about name changes. And like, I'm thinking about using that name that you really loved as like to honor you making that my middle name. He was like, oh my God, that's that would mean so much to me. I'm like, of course. Then he texts me and, and I was like, and this is a different first name and this would be the last name or the middle name. And he was like, okay, wow, that's I love that. Then like two days later, he texts me and he goes, I think you should use that as your first name. And I said, no, I'm using it as a middle name. And he's like, why not as a first name? And I was like, because I'm using it as a middle. I'm, we had, you were very touched. We had this conversation. And then he was like, well, I think I'll just call you that as your first name. And I was like, you know, between it's, he's like, here are your options. It's your dead name or this name that I've chosen. Go. Like he, <laughs> like they are good. And like, but it's just like, I was like, I guess some people, their parents call them by their middle name. Like, I don't really know. But I was just like, wow, we got so close. And there's and then and then all for, there's no room for compromise. It's like my dad calls all the grandchildren a version of their middle. It's not like their actual middle name, but like a version of their middle name. Why? 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 I don't because that's just his thing. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's like that's not what I actually want. And it's like I remember I te- I screenshotted it, I texted it to my sister and I was like no one respects me. <laughs> well, it's like also I guess another reason that this all came up was like planning a wedding is like a lot of compromise of mm-hmm. like like how much is what I want matter versus what my family wants versus what John wants versus what his family wants and like that feels like a minefield of navigating compromise. And so I have felt like I don't know when I'm supposed to stand my ground or when I'm supposed to compromise or give in or whatever. It's like, it's tricky. Yeah, I'm just going to give in to my dad. But like, <laughs> I mean. To make the middle name your first name? No, he can call me whatever he wants. Oh, okay, gotcha. I'm I'm not changing it. But here's the thing. So like with wedding stuff, I think maybe you just have to like, Think about what is going to bother you on the day. Like if you want to like put your foot down now, but like certain things, it's like on the day you might be like, I don't really care what about these flowers. Well, that's the whole thing is like, but I, I lean towards I don't care. But so it's like, but then am <laughs> I losing sight of what I wanted? Do you know what I mean? Which I feel like is sometimes a trap, even though I am like a very like rigid person in a lot of ways. I am like very flexible in other ways. Like I, I'm very much like, the younger sibling of like, oh, what do you want to do? Okay. Like, you know what I mean? Oh, um, yeah. So I think it is like I'm having to sort of like take. Well, I had an incident with John about something where I had originally agreed to something that I had to sit with and realize I wasn't OK with. And and like, you know, the details of it doesn't matter. But like the and I and like I caged this realization where I was like, OK, I've sat with this and it's not sitting right with me. And then I went and I like said, I kind of like took back what I had said because I felt like I had kind of agreed to it too quickly and without realizing how it would make me feel and all these things. And it was like really difficult for me 
to push back. But I also feel like in my past relationship, I maybe wouldn't have. And so Mm -hmm. I was like proud of myself, even though the thing that was proud of myself, like kind of caused conflict. But then again, he's a partner who like it didn't. I mean, we it was like uncomfortable, but it didn't like cause a, a ruckus or a huge fight or I anything. I was going to say, just, like, like how did he take it? I think he was upset, but he was like, but like I was upset too. Like sometimes there are things you just disagree about. And so it's not like, uh-huh. and it's not like, you know, like what you can, it's not like either, there's a scenario where like both people are going to walk away feeling like, like that was like yeah. perfectly resolved. But I think that like there was like an element of finding a, a, a level of compromise there yeah. that like helped. But I think at the beginning I had just given in completely to him not thinking it through. Which is like another thing, right? Like sometimes in the moment you're like, oh, this won't bother me this much. Let me just compromise on it. Only to then later be like, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Two things. I think one, it depends on how you guys react to each other when you're compromising. What is what is the level of calm? What is the level of reaction? Do as everyone assume that everyone has good intentions? Did everyone assume that they love each other? Like that kind of thing with like coming into it with like, I I want to solve this because I want us to both, you know, have some semblance of happiness. And then two, I think sometimes you come into a a conversation with, let's say, a partner and you've already compromised in your head. So let's say you want to go away for three days, but you are you come to them and you're like, I want to go away for two days because you've already made the compromise in your head. Then they go one day and you go, oh, well, I already compromised. So like, I think sometimes it's hard, but you have to go in with like the full truth without trying to couch things for somebody else's benefit so that you don't end up compromising on the compromise you already made for yourself. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Just me? <laughs> no, it made sense. I am someone who is a contradiction because I will go with the flow, but I also feel like I'm right all the time. So it's like, I don't know. <laughs> Yeah. Do you have like like an instance where you were like, I had to stand my ground? Yeah. A lot of things like with work, I imagine work too. Yeah. A lot of work things I do stand. Sometimes I'm just like, whatever, especially when I'm working with somebody that is a difficult client that doesn't know exactly what they want and then want more time spent on something than they're willing to pay for. Mm. And so I have to stand my ground more on that. But you know, if they agree to pay it, then I can be a little more flexible with it. What do you mean about COVID? You started to say COVID. Yeah, with COVID stuff, like my thoughts on like who I was going to be around. And even like when I go home here in a couple, well, next week to visit my family, like my mom wanted to have a party. And I was like, absolutely not. Like, I will not stay with you if you have a party. My best friend that lives there who has a whole room for me actually a whole floor for me to stay at her house who's a doctor that I know is going to be very like rigid about her I was like I will go stay with Sarah and I will not stay with you you should anyway a whole floor with a doctor is she married no you should marry her well I'm not really into same sex so (laughs) (laughs) neither is she but but a doctor I turn into my mom and my Jewish mom, not my mom, but a Jewish mom immediately. Did, what happened with your mom? Did your mom agree not to throw the party? Yeah. She's wow. Like, well, if you're and not going to stay here. I mean, she tries to guilt me into things all the time, but I'm very, very rigid about things like that. Yeah. 
even when I went home in May for her graduation and she was like, I want to have this big party. I was like, and go to this restaurant and stuff. And I said, no, I will literally cook everything, which I did. I ended up cooking everything and like restaurant style meal. It was pretty spectacular. Like people are still talking about it now. But I was like, you can invite your brothers and some other family members. But other than that, no, I you can y'all can go, but I'm not going to stay with you. I'm going to use Melissa as my unofficial lawyer to negotiate anything coming up. (laughs) Like I have anything coming up. I'll be like, I actually need to speak to my lawyer. And the person will be like, that's your podcast producer. And I'll be like, that's correct. (laughs) You will need to go through my attorney, Melissa DeMotz, Esquire. (laughs) And I'll be collecting attorney fees. See, and that's the sort of business (laughs) mind. The knowing your worth sort of business mind, uncompromising entrepreneurship we're looking for here at Gabby Dunn University. (laughs) GDU. GDU, baby. Allison has a master's. Not yet. From GDU. GDU. Maybe a doctorate, actually. (laughs) Yeah, I got a PhD. (laughs) (laughs) What do we rate this episode? Oh, I will rate it 47 out of 23 safe spaces. Nice. I'll rate it 64 out of 64. Drink more water. Yeah. I will rate it 12 out of 9. Allison and John compromise. (laughs) We'll take it. Thank you to Liam Colley for being our guest. Just Between Us is a Forever Dog production hosted by me, Allison Raskin. And me, Gabby Dunn. Produced by Melissa Diamond Monts. Edited by Coco Lorenz. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, Alex Ramsey, and Tracy Soren. Brendan Burns composed our killer theme music. To listen to this podcast ad-free, sign up for Forever Dog Plus at foreverdogpodcast.com slash plus. And check out video clips of our podcast on YouTube at youtube.com slash team or on our channel, youtube.com slash show. Make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Forever Dog Team to keep up with all the latest Forever Dog news. Also at Allison Raskin, at She Is Not Melissa, at Gabby Road, Emotional Support Lady Substack, patreon.com slash Gabby Dunn, and also Allison's book, Overthinking About You. Go and leave a Goodreads or an Amazon review. Um, You can also go to Scribd and see my book, Stimulus Rack. But Allison's, give them reviews. Okay, bye. Forever.